Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by Gage. Gage is a free and open source test automation tool by ThoughtWorks with a goal of taking the pain out of test automation for acceptance tests. To help with this, Gage supports specifications and markdown, which are easy to read and easy to write. Reusable specifications to simplify your code, which makes refactoring easier and less code means less time maintaining your code. And finally, integrations. Use Gage with your favorite tools and IDEs in the ecosystem of your choice, like Selenium and Sahi Pro, CI and CD tools like GoCD, Jenkins, Travis, and IDE support for Visual Studio, VS Code, IntelliJ, and more. The team behind Gage believes in using web technology to test web applications. Head to gage.org slash jsparty to learn more and give it a try. Once again, gage.org slash jsparty. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. All right. Welcome back, party people. We are excited today, as we're always excited here on JS Party for these shows. Today, we got a little bit of a special show for you. We're taking Faraz, your beloved JS Party panelist, and we're turning him into a bit of a guest. So this is me, Jared, and Faraz is here. And we're going to have a little bit of a conversation about a very cool project that Faraz has put together and put into the world. And that is called BitMidi. So a bit of a fireside chat, although a strange one as it's Morning time for both of us. I was going to say, get your cognac, have a nice drink, sit down by the fire. Let's talk about BitMidi. But that just kind of doesn't feel like what we're doing here today. Either way, we're going to have fun for us. What's up, man? What's up, Jared? How's it going? Going very well. Going very well. Hey, I've been thinking about this show a little bit this morning and just what we're going to talk about with BitMidi. And before we get into the, the nitty gritty of what it is, how you built it, why it's cool, why MIDI's are rad, all that kind of stuff. I want to talk about you a little bit because, you know, we met back in 2016 when we had you on the change log and we learned a little bit about your history with school notes and some of the, the, the ways you were making money kind of on accident, kind of on purpose and how you got into the open source game and how you're, how you do kind of all the cool stuff you do around web torrent and these things. And I wanted to catch up with that and maybe have the JS party listeners who haven't listened to that show, by the way, if you want to go deep into Frost's history, go back and listen to that episode of the change log. We will link it up in the show notes. I can't remember which episode it is off the top of my head. It is. Oh, and I didn't write it down. So check the show notes for that. But <laughs> let's find out what you're up to lately. So you put out these cool projects. and I know you got a Patreon thing going. Give people a little bit of your recent backstory and what's up with your life. So I don't know if you heard the most recent news of all, but I actually just started my master's degree a couple weeks ago. Really? Yeah. Well, it's kind of Congratulations, I guess. Are you studying... It's like CS or what's what's the degree in? Yeah. So I well, actually started I started a master's degree in CS back in 2013. I did it like immediately after my undergrad and uh, put it on hold to go and like try to start a company. And that was in yes, that was in 2013. And uh, we did that for a little while and um, we were acquired by Yahoo and worked there for a year. 
And then while I was at Yahoo, I started the WebTorrent project. So, so WebTorrent sort of came out of that. It came out of the startup experience that mm-hmm. I had. A lot of the sort of ideas around using WebRTC to do peer-to-peer connections and, you know, the insight that that, that could be used for bringing bit, something like BitTorrent to the web all happened because of the, the startup. And so then after I left Yahoo in, in around at the beginning of 2015, I basically just worked on open source constantly uh, and, and went and traveled around and talked to conferences and, you know, shared what I was doing and met, met a lot of cool people and found a lot of people to collaborate with on WebTorrent. Did you have income at that time? Were you just living off savings? Were you scraping the bottom of the barrel? How were you making money during that time? So that's a bit of both. So a bit of savings, just like being really frugal while I was working at Yahoo. So I could build up a bit of a savings. But then on top of that, um, I also had, like, like we talked about in that changelog episode, I had a site called Study Notes, which was providing some ad revenue, basically, from, from some Google AdSense ads that are on, on that website. Those two things sort of gave me the flexibility and the freedom to basically work on open source for no money for several years. And yeah, it's been it's been really cool to be able to do that. Um, it's definitely not having to worry about the the financials on the day to day like a lot of uh, other people who want to do open source do has been really, uh, really nice. Very cool. Yeah, I found that episode 227 and I, I misspoke. I said I called it school notes. That's what I get for going off of a three year memory. <laughs> but uh, study notes was that project. And that's very cool that you got to go got to do open source for so long Now you also I don't know, somewhat recently, maybe a year ago, you do have Patreon support. You do have a few other things going on. Tell us about that and then how you decided to go back to grad school. Yeah. So with the Patreon, I was sort of getting interested in open source funding and, and you know, everyone's been talking about open source sustainability. It was sort of top of mind. And uh-huh. so I, I was thinking about, is there anything I can do to help solve this problem for people? And I just became kind of interested in it. And as a way of investigating whether there's something I could, some idea I could come up with that would help, you know, all open source maintainers, myself included, but also like a lot of my friends. I thought I'd explore a couple of different like ideas. So like one of them was, you know, like is Patreon actually like a solution that we that we could use to solve this problem? And so I thought I would try to do a Patreon and see like what it's like and, you know, how much work it is Uh and whether it would be possible to actually get to like an amount of money where you could actually just work on open source from it. So it was honestly mostly just an experiment. And um, and I've tried other experiments since like I I made this thing called thanks, which um, you can run a command in your node project and it'll you run so you run npx thanks and it'll look through your whole dependency tree and figure out which of the packages that you're depending on are created by authors who are looking for donations currently so that's pretty cool yeah that's awesome i remember logging that back when it happened hanging out on patreon for a second i mean you you say this is an experiment do you have results like did you test a hypothesis and have what's your experience with patreon uh, in terms of the experiment and what are your thoughts on it so I think it's actually really hard to recommend Patreon as a solu- as a general solution to solving uh-huh. sort of op- open source funding because it requires a bit of well it requires a lot of work first of all uh, just to like create the page and you have to kind of have a bit of a ability to do marketing I guess to be able to sort of pitch why people should support yeah. you so that's one thing and not everyone wants to do that or or is good at that and then I think like the people I've seen who've been most effective at being able to get to, you know, like an amount of money where, you know, they could actually say like, okay, I'm going to work on open source part time or full time. I would say that's at least a few thousand dollars a month. But even, you know, here's the big problem with this. Like the problem is people are talking about open source sustainability, you know, like as if it's this, this thing where like if you could just get to like uh, break even where, you know, you're barely making ends meet that somehow that's like a good thing, you know, because now you're sustainable. But like, you know, a lot of us who are doing open source could go get a job and be really, really well compensated doing that. 
And so it's really not an, an ideal goal to just try to get to sustainability. The goal should be like profitability. And that might not that might not sound good to a lot of you know listeners because they might think like, you know, open source isn't about profit. But I think like if you I think I think Kyle Mitchell, um, who's a lawyer at NPM, said this really well. He said, like, if you're if you're making a profit, that's a sign that you're not being exploited. So just from like a like mm-hmm. if you, imagine like if you know you were you had a job and you were just barely making ends meet, you know, you, you, you it, it's really not it's not a good position to be in. Um, and the, especially when the work you're creating has really has, has really has a lot of value to a lot of companies. And so anyway, I just think that the bar should be raised a little bit to 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 to, to more than yeah. just like, you uh, you know, I can I can, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, my, my savings isn't being drained while I'm working on this software for people. But anyway, but that's, that's besides the point. So to answer your question about the sort of the Patreon, I think like there's only been a few people like, like maybe like, I don't know, 10 or 20 programmers that I know who've been able to sort of breach that like $1,000 per month barrier. And it, most of them already had sort of um, existing Twitter followings where they could just sort of reach out to all those right. people. And also it, the other thing that's weird about that is like, you don't really want to be asking fellow programmers, fellow open source people to like fund you. It's really like, really what you want to do is ask yeah. companies. And so the whole thing is kind of weird. Like it, 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 all the rewards I offered on my Patreon, for example, were all like stickers and things that I knew that other developers would want. But I realized after the fact, like sure. I actually would rather just be taking you know money from a few, a few companies who are using my software than trying to, you know, ask for like support from all these people who, you know, really shouldn't need to be supporting me. A couple of quick thoughts there, and we'll get back to the main course here, because uh, as you know, with the change log, I can talk about this stuff all, all day and I'll tend to. So I'm cutting myself off as well. But two thoughts to add to what you're saying there on the sustainability side. I think I agree with you 100 percent that we shouldn't have the goal of sustaining like survival shouldn't be the goal, like thriving. Right. So like open source projects are, should thrive. They shouldn't just survive. And so I agree that we should raise that bar. And then secondly, there's a celebrity culture on the web, which translates into programming and open source, where we look at successful people and then we try to turn that into a model. And I mean, this happens on YouTube all the time. If I can just get to 100,000 subscribers or, you know, I can be a YouTuber and I can YouTube all day or I can stream on Twitch all day. And we look at these extreme outliers as examples and instead of as outliers. And so it's very difficult to get there. But we tend to say, well, this person did it and so can I, which doesn't mean you can't. It's just like that doesn't make it easy or sustainable as a model that you should follow. So all good points. Real quick, let's t- touch back on the grad school thing and we'll close that loop and then we'll get to Bitmini. Yeah, so I I just thought it would be fun. Actually, I don't really have much of a reason for why. I just <laughs> I just uh, I figured I love that if I didn't uh, if I didn't go back and finish soon, then I probably would never finish. And um, and I think it, there's a lot of classes that would be fun to take and. Yeah, I just decided to do it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm also TAing a class while I'm here. So there's there's this really cool class uh, that's on sort of like low level computer systems, you know, C++, and so it talks a lot about like file systems and how you know that those are implemented and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be fun to, to, to help help teach that and uh, get back some of my skills, which are really rusty in that area. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know what else to say about it. It just is it's kind of a spur of a moment decision, too, to be honest, like a couple, like two, three weeks ago, I just like woke up one day and I was like, I should go back and get my degree. And then I I, I contacted the CS department and, and found out that I just had to fill out a one page form and they could reinstate me because it had been so long that they actually like deleted me from the system. They were like, you're not coming. Ooh. You're probably not coming back to finish your degree. It's been five years. They've given up on you. They gave, they gave up. Yeah. 
but but they were wrong because I came back. Well, I just have to say that the answer of I just thought it would be fun is such a feroz thing to say. I feel like that can maybe be your tagline or your motto uh, because so much of the projects that you put out, I think, are in me, it invokes just the joy of, of programming and creating things. And I always feel like the Joker on the old, not the recent Batmans, but the old school Batman, if you remember that one from 1990. You know, where he says, where does he get all of these wonderful little toys or something like that? He's just kind of in awe of what Batman pulls out of his belt. And so when you release BitMidi and, and these other projects, thanks as well, which I thought was really rad. Every time you make an announcement, I'm like, what's Feroz up to this time? And it, it almost always just seems like either to lift up other people in terms of thanks and, and sustainability, or this is just to bring joy to the world or, or even just to yourself. And so BitMidi, which you announced back in August, I think you launched it back in August, is a web app that is for listening to free MIDI songs. And that's the gist of it right there. And it's just kind of like, okay, this is cool. And I'm glad it exists, but I'm curious why it exists. <laughs> and so what, what was your inspiration and what was your decision to put what it appears to be a lot of time and effort and polish into this project? Tell us about that. Yeah. So I wanted to listen to some MIDI files because I just like realized that I hadn't heard a MIDI file in a while. And they used to be pretty common on the web in the early days. I used to find websites that just auto-played music in the background, and they were always MIDI files. They were always that sort of charming, like, old-school sound that MIDI files have. And then I just didn't hear them on websites for a long time. Obviously, they went out, it went out of style to, to auto-play music automatically. When you, auto-play especially, <laughs> yeah. yes. Beyond that, like, you'd think even when you go to old sites, you'd find, you'd still hear that. But I noticed that I, I hadn't seen that in a while. And so then I looked into it and the HTML tag that is used to auto-play MIDI files or any other kind of, like, sound file in the background is not around anymore. And in fact, it never even was in any other browser besides Internet Explorer which shows how long ago how long ago this was because I think it was it was even removed from there I think but mm-hmm. point is that you can't just add like a it's called BG sound you can't just add a BG sound tag to page anymore and get it to play MIDI but I figured okay maybe that maybe you could just use an audio tag to to do it yeah this is something that we've run into with the audio tag because there are some legitimate uses of autoplay with the audio element for instance if you're listening live right now you had to go to changelog.com/live And then you probably had to click the play button because we can no longer autoplay from the audio element. There's actually some heuristics in the browsers. Like if you've done it a bunch of times or whatever, they'll, they'll allow it to happen. But browser vendors, um, almost all of them now, specifically, I know Chrome and Safari have made that autoplay, which isn't a feature inside of the audio element API, not work, um, be to, to much to the rejoicing of end users, right? Like this is, this is something that we're glad went away because there's so much abuse of it, but there's also cool and, and legitimate uses. I think, by the way, this is why Twitter will autoplay video without the audio going as you mm. scroll the, the stream and you have to click for sound. And so, yeah, lots of limitations on the audio element, which I think have continued to get locked down as time has progressed. So I run into that as well with, with our stuff. Yeah, it's really too bad because that when that happened, they actually broke a lot of audio demo type sites. Yeah, there were a lot that just assumed they could play audio right away and they didn't provide a mechanism for like click, click, clicking to start the demo. So they're just broken a lot of the time. So BG, does BG sound just not even work anymore? Yeah, it'll just it doesn't exist. Yeah, it doesn't. I don't think it even ever existed outside of Internet Explorer. So like it's not in Chrome or Firefox or any of the other browsers. Okay, but you'd think you could do audio. You could do an audio tag that points to a MIDI file 
But if you tried that, you'd be wrong. It wouldn't work <laughs> because they don't even have MIDI file support anymore either. It's not just the BG sound tag. It's actually the whole MIDI format is like is like not not part of the web. So I don't know the exact history huh. of why that was decided, but I guess one reason is that is that operating systems used to include MIDI playback as like a feature of the operating system, like a MIDI MIDI synthesizer. I think like that was built into Mac at one point, and you can even f- still find like MIDI settings thing. Um, if you go to like utilities folder, there's like a MIDI setup app. Mm. I don't I don't really know the whole history here, but uh, I just MIDI is like not used as much for audio playback, and I think OSs are like removing their built-in stuff, so it makes it harder for a browser to play back those files, and so. I could see why they wouldn't want to ship like a whole MIDI, you know, playback infrastructure, basically, if it's not going to be yeah. used that often by websites and, you know, including that in the browser is kind of big. And that's kind of because of how MIDI works, which we could talk about if you want. Yeah, let's dive into that in the second segment. But I just did search MIDI in Spotlight and there's an audio MIDI setup dot app, which I didn't install. So I'm assuming that's just in the utilities folder there. Mm-hmm. In case you want to use MIDIs, you can like get it going in your OS, at least in Mac OS. But yeah, not not there by default. I want to dive deeper into MIDI and how you accomplish this. I know there's WebAssembly involved. There's lots of stuff that's interesting. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about the releasing of BitMIDI and your strategies there. Because one thing that I think you're very good at is getting eyes on the things that you create. And I think BitMIDI is no exception to that. Tell us about releasing a thing, because this is something that as JavaScript devs, as open source people, whether it's a little library or a huge endeavor that's a framework or, you know, a web app you want people to to check out, a lot of us struggle to get eyes on our things. And you've had somewhat success at that. And so I'm curious if you're intentional about a release, what your plans are. I know you have a big launch announcement. You go into the details of BitMIDI. Uh, I saw it on Hacker News. I think you put it on Product Hunt. Uh, Tell the people about releasing and what you go through and kind of how the different things work. Yeah, yeah. So I think one big hiccup or like one big problem that a lot of people face when they release stuff is they just don't want to they don't want to be seen as like marketing themselves too hard or being like spammer or being yeah. you know, being kind of, I guess, you know, self-promotional. Self-promotional. Yeah. The thing is, though, like so it didn't used to be as intentional about this. But now when I see that, I try to sort of immediately push back on it when I see people, you know, who say things like, you know, marketing is like self-promotion is bad or any of this kind of stuff. I think it is obviously fine line. But I think what people don't realize is that like a Twitter stream is full of noise, uh, just as one example. And so if you just like tweet out the thing that you did once, then a lot of people are going to miss it. So like being comfortable with with, I guess, pushing. I think I think most developers are just way too far um, onto the side of like not wanting to be self-promotional. And I'm not suggesting that people Mm -hmm. go way to the other side and become like totally annoying. But I think a lot of developers like it's probably it's probably pretty good. Just blanket advice, like promote what you've built more than you are currently doing it. And I think like like 99 percent of developers would that would be that would push be pushing them in the right direction as far as like where they are in that scale. Yeah, I mean, I definitely post, you know, when I've worked on something for several months, I want to make sure people see it. So I I post it to Hacker News. I post it to Product Hunt at midnight, which is the right time to post it there to get the upvotes all collect across the day. So I, I like, you know, go there at like a minute after midnight and post it. And then I usually like prepare like five or so tweets, maybe 10 tweets. I don't even, I don't know, but I just prepare a bunch of things and I tweet them out like regularly for the like next like three, four days after I release something just to make sure that like people have definitely seen it. And, um, you know, maybe somebody will see a tweet twice from me about the same thing, but I mean, so what, right? That's like, 
totally normal. If someone's interested in something, right. they're going to be tweeting about it a lot. Like if you don't like it, you can un- unfollow them. So yeah, I don't know. I just, people think like, oh my God, everyone's going to see all these tweets I'm writing and they're going to think that I'm annoying. It's like, no, just relax. Just like promote yourself more than you currently are. Especially if you put a lot of work into something, you know, you want people to see it. You want people, I mean, it's extremely motivational to get a response from, from people. It's, it's really demoralizing if you just, right. you work on something for several months and then you post it to Hacker News and then it doesn't, it gets no traction. And then you just are like, oh, I guess no one cared. It's like, no, maybe, maybe people just missed it. Like maybe you should post it again. You know, maybe you should, you should, um, yeah. Go to Reddit and post it on a bunch of different subreddits that you think would people would find it interesting. You know, just try try different groups. Like, for example, with BitMidi, I thought it was going to be a hit with people who are looking for nostalgic type sites, like looking for. I mean, I don't know. I didn't really know if this is even a real niche, but I just thought like, OK, people like I, I, I built this because I wanted to listen to MIDI's because I think they sound cool. And I missed them from when I browsed the Internet in the early days. I thought that was going to be the audience. But actually, MIDI is used a lot by musicians for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for talking to their instruments. It's like the sort of protocol that. And we're going to get into this later, I guess. But I found out that like I, I just on a whim posted it to this uh, subreddit called We Are The Music Makers on Reddit. And uh, and it got like, I don't know, 200, 300 upvotes there. And I did not expect that at all. I just posted it there on a whim. And so, you know, your, your, your audience might not even be who you think it is. And you sort of have to just kind of shotgun approach, like try a bunch of different, try putting it in front of anyone who might possibly like find it interesting and see see what they what they say. And, you know, maybe you'll you'll adjust, you can adjust sort of who you're building it for based on that. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Most teams either A, rely on their users to report errors, or B, use log files and lists of errors to debug problems. That's such a waste of time. Instantly know what's broken and why with Rollbar. Reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. It integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error. Give Rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the Bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Well, uh, thinking about the Jordan Eldridge who did Winamp to JS and has had huge success getting that in front of lots of people's eyes. Bitmini reminds me of that in terms of that, what that was for the listener is a HTML slash JavaScript re-implementation of Winamp 2, which was a beloved audio player by many, especially in the earlier days of the web. And uh, it worked, it's like flawless, like it looks exactly the way. And he got that on a lot of mainstream coverage. You know, you're maybe not TechCrunch, but like that style, like uh, it's still technology coverage, but it's uh, mashable, like these sites that aren't, it's not Hacker News, it's not Changelog News. It's a it's a, a place out beyond that. I think BitMidi may play there a little bit in terms of it has a bit of a mainstream like nostalgic thing to it. It's not just for developers, even though it's interesting to us for lots of reasons. Did you have any uh, efforts towards mainstream coverage or is that something that you think about? Yeah, I usually wouldn't think about that. But for this site, I thought I would actually try to contact some news sites and I actually haven't had any luck getting anybody to write about it so far. So 
but I, I did email like yeah. I did email all the people at the I don't know maybe like ten or fifteen of the tech publications that I thought would find it interesting, and I you know I did the whole typical advice you hear you know try to find someone who wrote about what you um, you know something related to what you're going to pitch them. So I found people who either written about like MIDI files <laughs> or retro, you know, kind of sure. old nostalgic, like web culture type things. And I emailed them all and basically got no responses. So I can't <laughs> let that kind of thing, like get you down. Like, I don't know, I'm definitely going to still try that same strategy again for the next site I build. And maybe I'll even go back and try, you know, try emailing them all again some, at some point to see if maybe they were all busy that week uh, because of, I think it was the week that Apple announced the, announced the, the iPhones and stuff. So I don't know. It right. could have been, you know, like I yeah. said, like it could have been just, you know, bad, bad timing or unlucky or something. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get, get down about it. Sure. Just to kind of plus one, what you said about developers promoting their own projects and themselves is that I'm in the same place where like, I feel icky about, you know, I don't want to self promote myself too much or, you know, these feelings or feel markety or spammy because those are such repelling things to me personally. I don't want to be that repellent, but let me just say to the developers out there. Uh, who feel the same way that I do is, do you know who doesn't feel that way is PR people and startups. And so do you know who's contacting us all the time is these people. And so it's kind of the squeaky wheel gets the oil. I would much rather cover the indie developer who's got this cool project that has five stars, right? As opposed to the startup that has a lot of traction and, and these other things, but I don't hear from them as much. I hear from the other people. And so uh, just to echo what you're saying there for us is do not feel shy, especially with changelog, because we very much fight for the little guy, so to speak, is to, you know, submit your things, get get the word out there. And sometimes if it doesn't stick, try again. Don't try seven times because we also get those emails. I'm just replying because you haven't replied. It's like, yeah, because this is the seventh time. I, I'll, I'll usually give them the all caps unsubscribe reply on that one. Um, but yeah, don't be shy because other people are not being shy and there's a lot of noise and you have to make a little bit of noise to get heard every once in a while. Totally. Yeah, totally agree. And I think most developers just naturally fall on, on one side of that, that equilibrium just because they, have, I don't know, like a personality thing, I think, I don't know, or like a culture thing where people don't want to do it. But yeah, I think everyone yeah. could afford to be a little bit more promotional and it would be still be okay. It would still be tasteful. Just, you know, increase it slightly and a lot of people would do well. So we started to unpack middies and what they are a little bit, at least you alluded to it. I'm completely ignorant about this. I just figured, I don't know, they're like a binary file format or something that's similar to an MP3 or, you know, some sort of encoding. But it sounds like they're kind of weird. I don't know. What'd you learn about MIDI's and then how did you get them to play on the web when they don't exist anymore in terms of a BG sound element that will, you know, parse and, and execute them? So MIDI, first of all, is, is mostly used by musicians to connect their devices together to control them. So they can connect like synthesizers, samplers, or computers together, and then the devices talk to each other using MIDI messages. So the MIDI files that you see online or, and that you find on BitMIDI are kind of like almost like a, an afterthought compared to the, the primary use of MIDI, which is getting all these devices to talk the same language. So you can think of a MIDI file basically as like a collection of these messages and just stored in a, in a certain file format. And then they can be played mm. back later. So, so say I connected like a keyboard, like a piano keyboard to my, to my laptop and I pressed a bunch of keys, that's gonna generate a bunch of messages saying like, this key is pressed, this, you know, this, this other note's pressed and you know, here's how long it was pressed and uh, here's how hard it was pressed. Um, and so each of those key presses generates some, some of these events and say like, you know, like there's an event I think to start a note 
there's an event to stop a note and each of those have like a time code. And so anyway, it's just a protocol that sort of encodes like, you know, what buttons are pressed and when things are started and stopped and what notes they are and so on and so forth. And the notes, there's no sound in those messages, right? There's no actual sound data. It's just saying like this key was pressed. Um, and so huh. it's, it's up to the, it's up to the thing that's receiving that message to make it make a sound if they want it to. Right. And it could make any sound at once as long as it's like makes sense. Yeah, that's right. You could do it. You could do anything with it. In fact, people sometimes use these MIDI messages to do things like control lights for like a light show or timing different stage events. I was going to say, it sounds very programmatic and useful. Like it sounds like you could very easily program. And I'm sure there are tools and software that is all about programming these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are actually libraries in JavaScript that let you create like these MIDI messages. Actually, so by the way, it's probably worth mentioning there is this thing called the Web MIDI API, which is a part of Chrome, and I think it's going to come to other browsers uh, later. That's actually a, a way to connect a MIDI device to your computer and then to control, to be able to send messages to it from web page. So I could connect like a, or, and, and, and to get messages from it. So two, two way. So I could connect like a, let's say like a, like a, like a piano keyboard to my computer and then play some notes on it and then capture those in a web page and then, you know, play some sound from it or record which keys were pressed. It's almost like the similar to the web USB API, mm. but it's but it's for it's specifically for MIDI devices and supports like all the little MIDI messages that you might send and receive. But I'm not an expert on that. We should probably if, if we want to find out more, we can talk to Rachel because I know she's been playing around with web MIDI quite a bit lately. So, yeah, so that's so that's a little bit about like MIDI and MIDI messages and stuff. But MIDI files are just collections of these messages which have been assembled together. And then it's almost like when you play back a MIDI file, what you're really doing is you're like kind of. It's almost like there's a fake instrument that's generating all those those note presses like after the fact, you know, but it's like playing you're playing it back mm -hmm. to actually make the sound. You need to have something that listens to those messages and actually can get the sounds of the instruments that are required and, and, and be able to play the notes that are that are being that are that are coming through those messages. So gotcha. You literally have to have a what's called like a sound set or an instrument pack. They have different names, but basically you need to have like someone's gone and recorded like what every note on a piano sounds like when it's played and what every note on a trumpet sounds like when it's played and every for every instrument and then put these into like little little files that are called the sound set and then you combine that with the midi file to actually play the sound to play the song back hmm. it's almost like a runtime for the instruction set it's like if without this without this audio runtime this set of actual sounds to instruct the instructions can't do anything, but you could swap those in. So maybe the exact same note on a piano versus on an organ. Maybe it's the same exact note. You swap in the organ and you get the organ sound. That's totally right. And it just is just, that's cool. I did not know that. Yeah. So that's sometimes why if you played back a MIDI file in a different uh, music player, why it would sound different. So, so if you, mm -hmm. if you go to BitMIDI, like the file sounds one way, but if you go to like, you play it in VLC, it'll sound different and, and so on and so forth. And that's because, that's because the um, instruments are going to be different. The, the instruments that are built into each of those programs are different. So yeah, it's, it's kind of strange, like how, you know, there's no sound wave inside the MIDI file. It's just like, it's almost like digital sheet music. It's like, you know, you need to have somebody perform the sheet music to actually hear it. Right. That's a good way of thinking of it. So you downloaded these 100,000 MIDI files, a zip file or something of all these files, which are just the instructions. And then how did you get from there to bitmidi.com, aside from the whole web app site, but the actual just playing of those? What was your process to get that done? Yeah. So I had mistakenly thought that there was like no way to play back these on a modern computer. Well, at least in an easy way. 
So I, I didn't realize VLC could actually play MIDI files until after I built the website <laughs> because I got, <laughs> I got really, did you not try. No, or? I did. I did. I tried. I swear I tried, but I just forgot. I, I must've, I must've tried like a, uh, like a couple of files that VLC couldn't understand because uh, mm. I like, I, I like distinctly remember being like disappointed. I thought VLC could play everything. So I was like, what is going on here? But then I figured, okay, maybe MIDI is kind of a weird format because they need to have this like instrument sound pack and they just probably, I assumed they had decided that, you know, it's not a real like media format because it requires this like instrument set to play back the sound. So I figured maybe VLC didn't want to include it for that reason, but I was wrong. Yeah, no. So, so in some sense, the whole bit MIDI like site, the whole, the whole reason why I made it was so I could play back these files because I thought it was you know too hard to play them back because VLC couldn't do it and <laughs> QuickTime can't, can't do it anymore. And, and all the free programs that supposedly could do it looked really sketchy. I mean, there were no websites that I found that could do it. Yeah. So I, was like, so I was like, oh, okay, fine. I'll just go and script in. I'll go and basically take something that's written that can play these back and compile it to JavaScript. That was the whole whole approach I took. So what did you find? And then you, you compiled it to WASM, I assume. And that, that's what is, is that what's currently being used on the site? Yeah. So there's a, there's a C library that can play back MIDIs. It's called libtimidity. And you can you can get a command line. I think you can even install it on Homebrew if you're on a Mac. You can so you get this command line program called called Timidity, and you can pass it like a like an argument that's the MIDI file you want to play, and then it'll play it. And it sounds pretty good. You got to give it an instrument pack, you know, so that it can play it back. And then I found the C lib the sort of the library version of that, which takes in the the MIDI file and the instruments, and then produces like a wave sound as output and and I was like, okay, I need to compile this to to WebAssembly, which I'd never done before because uh, I don't know, I'd never had really a need to use WebAssembly or MScript yeah. or anything. It's kind of like just not something I've, for whatever reason, not something I ever needed to do until now. But yeah, so like one of the like main things it's for. A lot of people talk about how it's for performance, um, and that's certainly like a, like a thing that it, that it's good at. And and it's a lot of people talk about how you know it'll let them finally stop writing JavaScript, which is which is I, like less true than than they think because I think you, I think we're gonna still need JavaScript for a long time. But the main the main thing that I think makes it cool is that you can take code written in other languages like C that that you don't want to have to port to JavaScript and just be like okay now it runs right. in the browser. That's the thing that I use the aspect of it that I liked a lot. So I'm thinking about your old moniker of a mad scientist. And I'm kind of imagining you know Doctor Frankenstein or Frankenstein. You know, the first time he plugs all those arms together and the, the monster animates and that feeling of, of like, I hacked this thing and it's amazing. Like, look what I have created. Did you have any aha moments? I'm imagining the first time you heard that sound out of your browser window of the MIDI actually playing after you've used MScript in to compile this lib timidity into a WebAssembly thing. And then you've wrapped that and called it. And then here's the file. Was that a pretty awesome moment when it finally played? Yeah, definitely. There were other um, websites that had attempted to to build like a JavaScript MIDI player, but they all had like certain problems playing back files. Like they they would they were missing instruments. They seemed sort of hello world type things. There was one that could could play back only piano instruments. There was one that turned all instruments into pianos. So <laughs> if you had like a, <laughs> a song that had like ten different instruments, they would just all come out as piano. Which didn't sound good, obviously, because <laughs> you don't want your drums to come out as key, piano key presses, for ex for example. I don't know. Th there, there were a bunch of things that were out there, so I kind of had you know had, had seen like okay, I can play, I can kind of play a MIDI, but all the different libraries had sure. like limitations that made it didn't make it made it sound not as good as I thought it could sound or should sound. And then 
I also wanted the file size to be small too. It's another thing I was thinking about because I, I wanted the website to be fast. I didn't I didn't want a lot of the the sort of previous experiments that I found littered around GitHub just you know ended up producing these like one megabyte JavaScript bundle sizes for whatever reason. Um, they were huge sure. and really slow to load. So I would say the moment was, I guess, reduced a little bit by, by the fact that I had sort of seen some similar things working. But once I had it all hooked up and it was all my code, well, not all. I mean, I still use the Libtim, I still use Libtimity, but my own, for, you know what I mean? My own, my own like contraption. Once that worked. Your own creation. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was really, really cool. Um, and I, I just sat there for like hours and just played a bunch of different MIDIs, you know, and, and was very satisfied with, with the whole thing. And yeah, yeah I, I want to say too, that I, I, I did learn a lot from some of the previous attempts that I'd found on GitHub, the sort of unfinished code that people had put up there, because like I said, I hadn't used, you know, hadn't used mscripten before. So being able to look at other people's attempts at, at, at compiling like a MIDI player or, or any kind of, of player like that to, to WebAssembly was, was really useful. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I definitely was, in, was inspired by some of the stuff I found on GitHub there to be able to figure out how to do that all. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. it's actually not not that hard as, as you'd think to uh, to do it. Like, you know, I'm not that good at, at C or C plus plus. I mean, I, I I can read it and I can I can write it right. if I have to. But yeah, it's not at all. Like, I've never really written like a serious program in it. But I was still able to you know go in and make a couple of changes here and there, and then and then and then get it to work. It's quite cool. Have you have you actually done anything like that, Jared, with with uh, MScripten or WebAssembly? I haven't. I haven't used WebAssembly for anything personally where I've had that that moment or, you know, you know, cobbled something together. I've definitely had some experiments with C in ways that uh, I'm very much in your same camp where, like, I can read it. I wrote it back in college, like very simple things, but like complex C programs are intimidating, but I can read and slightly modify them. I remember I took a back in the day, I took like a, a GZIP type of a tool which was written in C. It took me like three days to figure out how it all worked, but I was able to uh, multi-thread it basically by changing like seven lines of code in the C program. So open source for the win there. But and I remember that moment of like, holy cow, this thing actually runs in, I think it was across eight processors at the time. <laughs> it just cut the process down from eight by eight. That was amazing. And I barely changed any code. And so I imagine it's a similar type of feeling, but I haven't, we've talked about WebAssembly. I've interviewed lots of people about it. And I definitely see all these different use cases, but never personally ran into one where, like you before, MIDI just hasn't crossed my radar as something that I've needed. Yeah. Curious about the the final step there. So you have the WebAssembly executable or that that section of the, that you can call into, but then, and you have Timidity running in that, which produces the sound. How do you actually hook that into, is it the audio, web audio API that you bridge that gap? What's the final glue that gets it to play? Yeah, it's the web audio API. So that you can take like a buffer of, of you know, wake wave sound data and then just play it using the web audio API. So the part before that though is kind of interesting. So you have these, um, when, when, you're, when, you're, when you're doing the build, the inscription build of the library, you specify which functions in the C program you want to be exposed to JavaScript. You select like, you know, I want the function where I where I call like read some more bytes from the MIDI file. I can't remember what that function was called, but it's like read something. And then I want, you know, the, the, you just pick a handful of the f- functions that you're, you're going to need to call. And then MScripten produces this little uh, like JavaScript, I guess it's kind of like a loader file that will actually load in the WASM. So the WAS, WASM file is this assembly, this binary file that you can't you can't open in a text editor and read. But then there's a JavaScript file that goes next to it that actually will 
when you include that in your website, it will do a fetch of the WebAssembly mm-hmm. in the background. And then all the functions that are all the functions that you wanted to be exposed will be exposed once the WebAssembly is fetched. So it'll tell you when it's when it's ready, when it's loaded it loaded everything in and and um and those are C functions too, remember. So like the 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 method, like the function signatures are kind of weird. Like mm. if you call a function in C and it returns you a string, that's gonna be a car star, which is a pointer to a character like buffer. Right. And so <laughs> that's the other funny part is <laughs> pointers in, in JavaScript. Pointers. Yeah. <laughs> pointers. <laughs> exactly. But they're they come out as numbers, basically. They're just memory addresses as numbers in JavaScript. Mm. You can take that pointer and pass it into another function that needs a pointer. You can even call malloc to get like memory and it gives you back the address as a number, you know, as a pointer, but it's a number in JavaScript. And then and then if you wanted to if you need to do something like, you know, turn a car star into a like a string, then what you you call a special function that Mscripten gives you that says it's called like pointer stringify. You pass it the number that represents the uh, memory address where that where that character string is, and then it'll go and read the, all the characters until it finds the terminating null, and then it'll give that to you as a JavaScript string. So, wow. yeah, it's, so you can you can sort of translate between the two the two uh, levels. Now, obviously, like you don't want to expose, you don't really want your users to, uh, your users of your library to have to like f- deal with like see. Uh, you want to wrap that. You wrap that up exactly. So now, like if you use the npm package that I published, it's called timidity, then it'll like wrap all that up into a nice JavaScript API. You don't even know that, that that's going on behind the scenes, which is pretty cool. That is cool. Pretty amazing that all this works at the end of the day, isn't it? Like when you think about all the intricacy, intricacies of how these things yeah. work together, it's kind of awe-inspiring. The part that blows my mind is how um, people port like giant games that are that are like huge code bases and they port those over to to WebAssembly. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I don't understand because I mean just doing this like I there were certain um, function calls where it was calling like file system read you know like it was reading a file off the file system to be able to find those those instrument sounds because um, right. the way the program works is you know it takes in the path to the MIDI file and no sorry it takes in the path to the folder where all your instruments are and then you can give it the the MIDI data by like passing that in through a function you call, but it'll it'll itself go and read the instruments that it needs from the file from the file system. But like, how do you get that to work in the browser? Because there's no file system. Exactly. And also, you don't want to like load all the instruments beforehand and put them into like a even if you could put in put, put them into like a virtual folder. Like you don't want to load all those those in because they're too big. Yeah, I mean they're just yeah they're like hundred megabytes. They're, they're too big. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, so what you do is, well, so Mscripten provides a way to basically put things into a fake file system. And then when, um, and you, so you pick the path and then you pick the data that you want to be at that path. And then when the program tries to read, like list out the files in that directory and read files, it'll just magically make that file system code work. But to be able to do the sort of like the correct thing, which is to, to, to not have to download all the instruments beforehand, there's a little bit of trickery involved. So you don't want to download all the instruments and put them all into this fake file system. So what you do instead is you you can sort of sit there, like wait until until the the libtimidity library tries to read an instrument, and then when it actually read does the read call, then you go out and make a make a fetch request to the server to get the file and then write it into the file system. Can you get just get a single instrument at a time? Yeah, yeah, because they're in different files. Yeah, so you can get one just the instruments. Oh, that, that's great. I was gonna wonder. Yeah, I was wondering because like eventually, if it's a hundred meg deal. 
And eventually you're gonna have to download that whole thing, but not if you're not using all the instruments. So that's great. You can split them out like that. Yeah. And if you if you go to BitMidi and you open up the network, you know, the inspector and you look at the network requests, you can see that it's fetching like you can see exactly which instruments are in the song that you just played but by seeing which instrument files are fetched. It's pretty cool. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams. Deploy, manage, scale faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Managing infrastructure is easy for teams, whether you're running one virtual machine or thousands. Use our special link to get $100 credit for DigitalOcean and try it today for free. Head to do.co slash changelog. Once again, do.co slash changelog. So I have some pretty awesome news to share. We are now partnered with Algolia. If you've ever searched Hacker News, Teespring, Medium, Twitch, or even Product Hunt, then you've experienced the results of Algolia's search API. And as we expand our content, we knew that one day we'd have to either roll our own search solution on top of Postgres, or we could partner up with Algolia. And I'm happy to report that phase one of our search is now powered by Algolia. We're able to fine tune our indexing, gain insights from search patterns and analytics. We can create custom query rules to influence ranking behavior, as well as improve our search experience by adding synonyms and alternative corrections to queries. Sure, we could build search ourselves, but that would mean we would be busy doing that instead of shipping shows like you're listening to right now. Huge thanks to our friends at Algolia for working with us. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free or learn more by heading to algolia.com. So I have to give you props on this one thing because you got past that big technical barrier of playing a MIDI inside of a browser. And that's where a lot of us would just stop and have that satisfaction, that moment when you played, you know, sound files for an hour or so. And a lot of us just kind of, you know, I scratched my own itch and I'm done now. And there's no more reason to finish this project, but um, you didn't do that. So you powered through and you've wrapped it in a very nice website. And so there's lots of ins and outs of the, the web app, Preact. Tell us all about you know, the experience uh, of BitMIDI. Of course, it's all open source code, so we'll link up the code base in the show notes for those who want to go, go poking through it. I did see, I think it was the Preact author was giving you props as like this is a, a high quality uh, example of a Preact application. So tell us about the web app that surrounds the WebAssembly. Yeah, so I I'm kind of a weird front end developer i think because i when i do when i do front ends why well i'm not really satisfied with any of the stuff that's out there i feel like we're, we're like as an industry we're doing something kind of wrong and i don't really i don't really know what it is but it just doesn't it all mm. doesn't it doesn't feel right something's something's not right and i don't i don't really know what like how to fix it myself but i feel like everything is too complicated everything is confusing everything breaks all the time everything is slow and i know that like we're all solving hard problems and, you know, there's a lot of stuff going into websites today that, you know, weren't like wasn't there before. And and so, you know, this stuff is, is, is still being figured out. But I didn't want to use one of those sort of off the shelf things. And I wanted to kind of piece together my own, I guess, web framework. Your own Frankenstein. Yeah, pr- pretty much. <laughs> and fig- and sort of solve the <laughs> solve all the problems myself and see if, you know, if maybe there's some lessons there that I could learn to turn into something useful for other people or 
So you built a web framework inside here? Is that what you're saying? Uh, I, I haven't pulled anything out into a framework, but yeah, there's like a lib folder with some useful stuff in there. And, you know, and may, maybe that'll turn into something one day. But my main thing was I just wanted to see if, if I just kept everything really minimalist, like how fast of a site could I build and, and how how much of the stuff that, that's out there I could just sort of not use, cut out, you know? Well, I mean, so there's the, there's the stuff that's out there about, you know, a lot of the like web evangelists at, at Google are talking about how like, you know, a lot of the frameworks that are out there sort of set you up for 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 failure before you've even started by being so heavyweight that, you know, on a, on a mobile device, on an average mobile device, especially like, you know, the average Android that's out there that people in the world have, you know, you're going to end up having such a such a large amount of JavaScript that has to be downloaded just for the framework itself to get going that you, you know, you, there's not much room left for your app to do to do stuff. And so, so you've already sort of lost the performance mm-hmm. battle before you've even built your app just because you selected a framework that's too big. So that's like that's something that I, I care a lot about, because when I was working on WebTorrent, I traveled a lot around the world um, to, you know, to, to different conferences and things. And I always used this free uh, data plan that I, I, I got from from T-Mobile where you get like free international data in a bunch of countries, but it's uh, limited to, I think it's like 128 kilobits per second. Maybe they, I think they might've upped it to 256, but it's basically uh, dial-up speed, (laughs) a little bit more than dial-up speed. And so I quickly realized which websites I used were actually built, you know, a minimalist, in a minimalist way, and which ones were built in a maximalist way, let's include everything. Uh, And so like, you know, Mm. I came to appreciate like the sites that, you know, that really tried hard to keep their their JavaScript, uh, you know, amount low and their and build their UI in a way that's, that feels responsive, even when um, the network is slow or the network is missing. And and so, yeah, I just think like a lot of sites could do better. And uh, and I know that like a lot of like, p- people are working on this and this is sort of like a lot of hard problems to, yeah. to solve. I'm, I'm not trying to you know rain on anyone's parade, but. I just thought that if I could piece together my own approach using, you know, using just the code that I know that I know I need and like where I know every line in the, in the app is like needs to be there. And I understand not that I, you know, not that I understand every line of code in the app, but I know, you know, I know every module that's included. Like I know the entire dependency tree and I know exactly why everything is included that I could build like a really minimalist, quick, fast, you know, responsive app. And it's not perfect. Like I didn't succeed. I think I haven't succeeded to the degree I wanted to. There's still a lot of things I need to improve about BitMidi, but but it's close. I think it's close. It's pretty good. Um, there's some stuff that's that's hard to do that I haven't done yet, like stuff with sort of, you know, making sure the UI always shows the loading indicator when you do certain things. And, and I want to do I, I sort of want to do some animations between pages, some page transitions that look cool. I haven't figured out how to do that in a way that that doesn't make you want to pull your hair out. And like I can do some server side like database uh, caching stuff that I, you know, they'll make things faster. But but on the whole, I think like the site is a is a pretty lightweight, pretty performant website, even on old devices. Like I, I bought an old um, an old Android phone that is supposed to represent the average, like the median, the median Android device in, in the world. And it's really slow. It's like really it's just a really bad phone, but it, it, it works pretty well. BitMidi works pretty well on it, like it, it no problems. Um, so I think I succeeded, I guess, mm. in that in that sense that that it actually it actually works on an old phone, whereas a lot more modern like or, or you know popular I guess more popular web apps like just don't work or just are painfully too painfully slow to use. Yeah, what I would love to do, and we probably can't do it here just with audio. In fact, maybe it would be fun to do a follow up Twitch stream or some sort of video where we could walk through the code and even have the site loading and kind of pick your brain in terms of like what's happening when. How you put it together, you know, why you made this decision, um, kind of from the the fresh eyes, from the experienced eyes, um, because it's difficult to explain just with you and I sitting here talking, you know, exactly how it's all wired together, 
uh, and the way that the, the application executes. But that might be something fun to do perhaps as a follow-up. That being said, maybe give us an idea of the dependencies you did pull in and the reasons why you pulled them in. Some of the bigger ones, like I mentioned, Preact, uh, you got some Express stuff going on. Give us an idea of some of the trade-offs, at least, that you can do via audio without, you know, losing us <laughs> as we follow along the best you can. I know that's a tough, that's a tough ask. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of things I could talk about. So, like, okay, I'll just maybe throw out a few things. So, so like, one thing I wanted to try on this site, by the way, I just want to be clear, I'm not recommending anyone do what, I'm, what I've done. Like, if you're not interested in all the details of like, the, you know, of, of, of every dependency in your tree, then then it's totally, you shouldn't do this. Like you're going to waste a bunch of time going down, like like figuring out how to do all this <laughs> stuff. And in the end, you're probably going to have like a bunch of bugs that you, that you didn't realize that, you know, that you needed to fix. And then actually, by the way, speaking of that, like I, I actually understand a lot of the des- design decisions and the things that I was complaining about before, after having to implement, you know, to implement my own, I was like, I was like, oh, my, my version is so much simpler than the thing that, you know, the thing I didn't want to use before. Isn't that nice? But then like a, a couple weeks go by and then I, I realize, oh, God, like there's actually a huge problem with the way this is designed and, and it's, it's not handling some edge case. And so I, I realize now why their design was more complicated than I, you know, and so but at least now, like, you know, and, and that happened over and over again. So then in the end, I kind of got to something that's almost like the same as the thing that I that I didn't want to use. But like, I understand all the decisions that went into it now. So that's I mean, if you're interested in that, like that, 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 that can be fun. But I, I wouldn't recommend, you know, necessarily doing this unless you're interested in, in learning, spending a bunch of time. So I just want to pre- just wanted to preface that with so that people don't tell me, you know, this is an unpractical way to build an app. Why are you recommending people do this? I'm not recommending people do this. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that said, the reason why why I asked it that way is because of Jason Miller, Preact developers vouching for it as a good example. You know, even though you're saying here, like, you know, you went down a lot of rabbit trails, you did things yourself that you probably could have pulled in. You made bad decisions. Hey, we all make bad decisions as we go about building stuff. That's just kind of what we do. And you can always look back and say, I could have done it better or, you know, I spent too much time figuring this out. And so the idea is just to, you know, hear about that a little bit, maybe some of the the trade-offs you made along the way. And, and even if people aren't going to look at this and say, this is how I must build my next web app, they could look at it and say, this is an interesting, different way to build a web app than I'm used to. And so what would be some of the things they might look at that you did that could be informative or at least experimental? Yeah. So one thing I wanted to do was make it so that I transpiled the minimum amount of code. So I didn't want to just pull in like a big Babel preset or even even preset env. I wanted to be extremely like intentional about every single um, plugin and, uh, you know, transform that I included. So I only transpile JSX out of the code base and and um, a couple of, of, of features like class properties, object rest spread and uh, optional catch, which is when you can do a try catch and you just omit the error in the catch. So just a few little syntactic things which are going to come to JavaScript eventually, but which are not in which don't work in the latest version of every browser. So mm-hmm. my goal was like I need it to work in latest edge, latest Chrome, latest Firefox and uh, latest Safari and um, same thing with mobile, mobile Safari, mobile Chrome. But that's basically it. I don't care about any other browser. So that's probably not practical for, for some people. But but if you make that your goal, then you can have a really quick Babel build that just does minimum amount of stuff and uh, also avoids, you know, bloating your code with a bunch of polyfills and, and uh, you know, uh, framework library code that's not going to be used. So that's kind of cool. And, and, and there are approaches to make it work where you sort of have like two builds and, you know, you can sort of give the non-transpiled code to new browsers. And, and I looked into that, but I... 
in the end, I just said, you know, this is a hobby project. I'm just going to support new browsers. I'm not dropping. Sure. I'm not dropping support for anybody who you know the site never worked for an for an Internet Explorer user, so they can't complain. It's not like I'm remo- removing support. It just never worked for them in the first place. So that's one interesting thing I think that that you can you can consider doing on your consider doing. And I think it's actually it's actually pretty pretty good recommendation because a lot of times now. The new um, syntax is actually, you know, as fast or, or sometimes faster, and it's certainly oftentimes less code than than the old way of doing it. So it's like less bytes on the wire, which is pretty cool. How are you measuring this? Is it lighthouse scores? Are you, you know, looking at your bundle size and just like trying to keep it below a certain kilobytes? What's your what's your measurement for success or failure with regards to some of these goals? Uh, lighthouse score has been the been the main thing I've been using because it's not enough to look at bundle size because the bottleneck a lot of times these days is actually the time it takes the JavaScript to execute or, you know, to parse and then to, and then to, and, and then to execute. So if you send down a bunch of JavaScript, even if it never, never runs, there's going to be a big parse time there. Or if you, if you gzip your JavaScript and you're like, oh, look how small it is, but you know, it ungzips to a bunch of code, it's still going to have to parse all that code. So the, you know, the, the gzip size is actually kind of misleading in some ways. Mm. So you can look at Lighthouse uh, and, you know, and see, um, what the time to first paint is and the time to first interactive is. And that's a much better gauge of like how quickly does the user see something and then how quickly can they actually interact with the site. And, you know, the the main thread is not busy with processing all the JavaScript. So those are those are two really useful tools. Google has a has a website you can go to actually where you can um, uh, put in your domain and then you can see historical real world uh, user metrics so they'll, they're actually gathering metrics from like people who've opted into to metrics in Chrome that that shows how quickly your website loaded, how quickly the, the first paint happened and how quickly it was interactive and, and all these various data points. And they're, they're gathering this for every like one of the top uh, like websites out there. So not even top websites, even things like Bitmedia are in the in, are in the data set. So basically you can look at and see if you access this data set, you can see how real users out there you know, who are using Chrome are actually are actually experiencing your website. And so if you if you improve it, you can see like in the new data for the next day or the next month, you can see like how much more quick your site has become on real users That's computers. Awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. So back to the Preact really quick. Like Preact is really cool because it gives you almost all the like, you know, conveniences that you want from like a like a front end like web framework. You know, you want to be able to like, let's say you like JSX, you want to be able to use that and be able to, you know, like develop in a sort of React style where you have components and where you have props being passed down through them and you have, you know, maybe some context or whatever, you know, you, you pull, you can pull components off of NPM. Like you get all that with Preact, but it's like a 10th the size of, of React. So that's pretty cool. That's like a no brainer decision to me because a lot of the stuff in React is for like re-implementing the way that, that events work in the browser. And the, the thing is the browser has a consistent events model now, like all the browsers do it the same way. So we don't need to re-implement that. Uh-huh. And that's a bunch of code that's just doing nothing for, I mean, I guess it's useful in the sense that if you're not using the DOM, like the way React does it, you can actually, you know, you have things like React Native, which can use React because they have their own events system. Whereas Preact, there's no such thing as Preact Native. Like if you do Preact, then, you know, you're really assuming the DOM is going to be there. So there's, there's that, that's a downside for sure, but I'm only planning for this to be a website. So it's not a downside. Are you opting out of any other ecosystem things with Preact, like anything in the re? I know you're keeping your dependencies as small as possible, anyhow. But for other people making maybe bigger apps or bigger decisions, if you're using Preact, are there React libraries, projects, widgets, what have you, components that you're opting out of because Preact doesn't have certain things? So, so there's a there's a thing that a lot of people use called a, like Preact Router. It's similar to React Router, and I've never been able to wrap my head mm-hmm. around that and like why people like that. I find it 
no offense to the authors, but I just find it's not the way my brain works. Like I, I don't want to put my routes in, in HTML tags. I find that extremely confusing. And, and maybe this has changed. Like I haven't looked at these libraries recently. So if this has changed, I apologize in advance, but I want my, my location to be in my store with all of my, my app state, because I see that mm-hmm. the location is just another bit of state, you know, like the user the location that shows up in the URL bar is just another bit of state that, that my app is in control of and that I can set to anything that I want. So I want my location to be part of the store and I want to use Redux style, um, you know, dispatches to be able to change that location to be, you know, to be different. And then I want the response to that to be to change the URL that's up there in the in the address bar and then to you know re you know re-render the app with you know with the new page that's being displayed. And all that can be done mm-hmm. if you just put your put your location in your store. And then you know then then what I do is I put my routes into another file called like routes.js or routes.json. And then that's literally just a mapping from URL to component, a page component that's going to render that page. And then it just matches on that using um, express style matching ma- URL matching. Mm. To me, that's a lot simpler. The idea is like, okay, now my store, now my state is actually in one place instead of being spread across these components or spread across these little weird, you know, route elements. And and now all all the all the um, what do you call it? Then now now if you serialize that and you store that, you actually have all the things you need to reproduce the the state of the app because it's actually all in one place now. I don't know. I might be missing something, but like I've never, like I said, I've just it's never been able to work for me. So I've opted out of that, you know, router stuff. Also, another thing is Redux. So Redux is pretty cool, but I found the sort of ceremony around using it to be a little bit too much. So I kind of made my own Redux, but it's actually not that hard since since Redux isn't that isn't doing that much for you. It's just you can basically make a big switch statement with a bunch of cases, which are mm. event names. And then you can sort of as long as you have that structure, you're getting a lot of the benefits of, of architecting your app that way without having to, be, to sort of do everything exactly the way they want. But if I were to do this again, I might actually just use Redux because I do think it does mostly the right things and most most of the, the decisions they make make sense to me now. Gotcha. Quick follow up to the to the Google tool. So the chat room is asking about this uh, historical data Google tool. Is there a pointer to that? Like, is that just inside GA or is there a specific tool that you can get a link that we can put in the show notes for that tool? Yeah, I can get the link. I think it's Chrome UX report, maybe. So search for Chrome UX report. And um, it's a little bit of a process to uh, to set this up initially for your site. But you but there's a little tutorial that they that they uh, have up there that what it'll do is basically creates like a little PowerPoint type thing that shows you the historical data. It's unnecessarily complicated the way to set it the way you, the way you set it up. But but the data is really good. And you can also use this thing called uh, Google Page Speed Insights. And if you use that, then you can get that one's a lot easier to use. You just type in a URL and then it'll tell you the real world page load times for that site. But it's only the current stats. So, so like as of yesterday, what are the numbers for that mm-hmm. site? But you can't get the, you can't get the historical data if you just use that, that tool. But but it's pretty good to get an idea of like you know, where your site falls on the user experience spectrum, I guess. Very cool. Okay, last thing before we call it a day is the future. Now, you know, I want that continuous playback. So I'm going to resubmit my feature request. <laughs> you know, once you once you give me that sweet MIDI and then I, I I go doing something else, don't stop. Just keep them coming. That's my feature request. But what else you got coming down the pipeline? What's the future of BitMIDI look like? So, you know, after I did all this, I realized that there's actually a different C library that makes the MIDIs sound better when they're played back. So I kind of want to go and, oh. and then script in a different library now. Yeah, it's going to take another few Can days of that. But better sounds always better, right? Yeah. So I, th- I think that I think the sound could be better. I, th- I think it sounds kind of <laughs> there's certain instruments that don't sound that good. Like there's a clap instrument that's supposed to be like a hand hands clapping. But it sounds like 
I don't know what it's, it just sounds so wrong in the current implementation. So I don't know whether it's the instrument that's wrong, that's off or if it's the MIDI player that I compiled, but I would like to try this other one. Huh. It sounds a lot nicer. It's called Fluid Synth. And I hadn't heard of it before, but someone on Hacker News pointed me to it and it sounds really good. And there's an instrument uh, pack for it that is, um, it's only 30 megabytes for all the instruments, which oh, is nice. really impressive. It's, they're synthesized. They're not actually using samples, like recorded audio samples from the instruments. They're synthesized, so so I assume it's like mostly code that's generating. Maybe there's some samples in there, but it's 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 they're able to compress the size down, I think, by like sort of filling in most of the the information with uh, code that generates the sound. So yeah, that seems pretty promising. So I wanted to try that to make it sound a lot better. And and I agree with you, continuous play would be great. I just haven't <laughs> haven't done it yet. That's why I brought John today was to get my feature request in. That's uh that's our secret here with changelog shows is they're all just Trojan horses for feature requests. <laughs> so I just trapped you. No, just kidding. One of the things I one of the things I was trying to do with this site, by the way, is is like um, not fall into the trap of building it and then putting a bunch of time in and then getting and then finding out later that like that the site isn't going to ever get any users because no one cares. So one of the things I've been doing is like I have the like a couple of lists in my to do list application where I say like this is a feature that I'll do only when the site gets this many monthly users. So the continuous playback is in the full is in the section right now of 10,000 monthly active users. That's a feature that I, I'm like, I'll do that once the site gets 10,000 people using it every month. Before then, I'm like, maybe maybe that one should be in there because arguably, you know, that's preventing people, more people from using it. Right. <laughs> it, you know, well, I was going to say that. I mean, OK, now now I'm getting my opinion out there. That's probably one of the most sticky features, because that's the reason why I probably like I go there and I'll share a link or whatever and we'll laugh about it. And we'll be like, this is cool. Like I said, I like to hang out in the Zelda sounds. But if I could just have a list or even just a whatever and just have it keep me like when it stops making noise, I forget about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's in a background tab. Now, that's just one person. So don't take the feedback of a single user and extrapolate too far. But it's potentially a sticky feature. That's all. But I like the fact that you're giving yourself thresholds, especially with a fun project like this. Like, don't put too much continuous effort into something that is cool and fun and interesting, but is ultimately not going to have like, you know, continued use because you want to build features for people, not for fun. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think this does have potential to be continuously used. I mean, I, I put a little bit of, little yeah. bit of effort into search engine optimizing the page a little bit, you know, so that like it can actually show up in Google. And so, you know, maybe, maybe this will actually get, get more popular over time, even without me, me doing any active promotion of it. That'd be pretty cool. But yeah, yeah there, cool. there's some advanced features that I like don't want to add until like, I know that there's going to be a lot of people who who benefit. Maybe continuous play should be should should already be in there. Like I'd rather err on the side of like doing less than more, just because I don't want to like you know like I I could do a bunch of stuff with like you know um, keyboard shortcuts or user contributed tags or like sheet of a, a view of the midis that show sheet music or like a visualizer or an upvoting system and I, and all this stuff is cool and I I'd love to do it at some point. But like right now, the, actually I was looking at the traffic. I have the latest traffic numbers here. It has around. Interesting. It has around like 6,000 monthly active users right now. So oh, you're almost there. Almost there for the continuous play. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just got to promote, promote it a bit more, Jared. Jared. Just pushing real hard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> just changelog is going to feature bit MIDI for the next three months until there's 10,000 people. Yeah. No, but I mean, do you, what do you, do you think that, do you think this approach, I think this approach is kind of, kind of cool because I noticed like as an engineer, like I, like actually I did this at my, st- the startup I did, like I, we basically built this thing, which we thought what people would want for like eight months. And then at the end we were like, does, is anyone going to pay for this? 
And then like at the end, we, like, you know, we had we had this cool technology, but it was like we did it in the wrong order. We should have made sure that it was the thing people wanted and would pay for it first. So we could have we could have built a lot less before in mm-hmm. order to find that out. In fact, we could have built nothing. We could have just talked to them and found out first. But because we were engineers, <laughs> I wanted to get into the code and be like, you know, is this possible? And so, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's just it's another kind of common, I guess, common engineer. We were talking earlier about the, you know, the engineers not or software people, not the culture promoting themselves enough culturally yeah i think there's another thing where like you know it's like a common failing of engineers is like wanting to solve all problems with code and so yeah i've, I've been trying to do uh mix in contacting like the press to, to, to get them to write about it and to, you know waiting waiting for the traffic to get high enough and doing what i can to get that up before i, I go and invest more time into into adding stuff to it so yeah i don't know i think it's it's a good way to make sure you don't go down a rabbit hole and, and spend like a month building a feature for a site that might not grow but i think this right. is looking pretty good it's looking pretty good i mean i i do want to keep working on it more the counterpoint to those kind of decisions is if you are personally a prime user right if it's your own enjoyment and it is a hobby or it is a side project and you still want it to be used by many people but if it's a feature that you personally want to use like that's the other excuse to build it right as opposed to this will serve lots of people it's like well this will directly serve me and i will have a happier life because of it then go ahead and yeah, build that yeah feature, that's true you know? and continuous play would actually do that for me because i'm personally also annoyed when i, I want to go and play like all the pokemon midis or all the um, yes what's the other one I, I, i've been playing full metal you know you know the anime full metal alchemist i do yeah. i didn't watch it but i know of it yeah yeah so anyway they have a bunch of midis in there and i wanted to play them all and i have the same problem as you all i want to do is load up all of rick astley's music <laughs> yeah i know you got five versions of never gonna uh, give you up or never gonna let you down in there i just want to get rick rolled continuously by myself <laughs> can, I, can we can we just do, get that done well for us this is awesome a bit midi is cool hey we're right up against a, a hard stop for you so i don't i want to be uh yeah, yeah no worries uh, respectful of your time totally. any final words uh, on bit midi before we call the show yeah i think uh, i think people should should build more random weird things make the internet weird and uh keep it weird and just build build stuff that you want to see exist and uh Share it. And don't be afraid to share it. Share it. And if you want to message me your stuff, I'll, I'll share it out too on my Twitter. Yeah, if you build cool stuff, it should definitely be seen by people. Don't be afraid to to blast it out so that people see your stuff. Very cool. Build cool stuff. Keep it weird. Let Faras know. He'll help you share it. Thanks so much, Faras. This was an awesome conversation. And we'll see you all next time. All right. See you, Jared. All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. Read us an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at Changelaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers at leno.com slash changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Music